0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Outgrow's podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Saksham Sharda. I'm the creative director at Outgrow.co. And for this month, we're going to interview Professor Dame Tillweix, who is a professor of clinical psychology and vice dean of mental health and psychological sciences. Thanks for joining us, Professor.
1: Great to be here.
0: So, Professor, we're going to start with a rapid-fire round just to break the ice. You get three passes. In case you don't want to answer the question, you can just say pass, but try to keep your answers to one word or one sentence only, okay? All right, so the first one is, how long does it take you to get ready in the mornings?
1: About seven minutes.
0: What time of the day are you most inspired?
1: Early evening.
0: Your favorite color. Blue. Most embarrassing moment of your life.
1: Guessing the Guinness World Record.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: For the largest mental health lesson.
0: Oh, wow. And what was it?
1: It was the Guinness World uh-huh. <laughs> Record for the largest mental health okay. lesson.
0: As in, like, how long was it?
1: Uh, not how long but how large uh-huh.
0: okay so 100.
1: it was you know four, 400 people or so Ah,
0: okay i see hmm.
1: or 400 children that's a <laughs> difficult gig if you're doing <laughs> 400 children
0: all right so the next question is how many hours of sleep can you survive on five uh, favorite book
1: the ragged trousers philanthropist
0: The city in which the best kiss of your life happened?
1: It's tough. There's been so many.
0: (laughs) So that's a pass Uh, then. That's
1: definitely a pass. (laughs) Uh,
0: The biggest mistake of your career?
1: Uh, Pass.
0: How do you relax?
1: Uh, Netflix, Prime, books, and occasionally walking.
0: Your favourite movie about mental health?
1: Uh, Outrageous.
0: How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? Two. A habit of yours that you hate? Pass. The most valuable skill you've learned in life?
1: Not to worry about failure.
0: And the last question is your favourite online Netflix, Amazon show?
1: Uh, Ted Lasso uh-huh.
0: Okay, all right So those were, that was a rapid fire round You did quite well, just two passes uh, So now we're going to move on to the bigger questions And these you can answer with as much ease as you like And the first one is Can you discuss a specific project or initiative You have been involved in that uses digital technology To improve mental health outcomes?
1: Okay, well, I've been involved in quite a few mm-hmm. So it's tough choosing one uh, but I suppose from the beginning, um, I helped develop uh, an online treatment, uh, computerized treatment, mm-hmm. blended, so it involves a therapist, uh, to help people with a diagnosis of schizophrenia with their cognitive skills. Um, that's because we know that people's cognitive skills can predict their poorer recovery um, as they go through uh, life in general. So the idea is to improve their cognitive skills and then get some uh, functional recovery and particularly to concentrate on their own personal goals. So it's called circuits. um, And we have evidence now for its effectiveness as well as its efficacy. And we also know now how to implement it because we've just finished a study on different ways of implementing circuits and what is the most cost-effective way.
0: So what are some of the ways in which these cognitive skills are being improved?
1: Okay, well, the software program includes both uh, sort of exercises and tasks. So tasks are a bit like the kind of games that you might play, very neutral, and it's very important to provide neutral tasks uh, because otherwise people get a bit anxious if it's a real life task straight away. And they learn skills like problem solving, breaking down, planning, uh, chunking information, learning how to memorize something. Uh, most, Most times people do have some of those skills. Uh, but they've forgotten to use them. Other times they don't actually because the because the problem for people with schizophrenia is it starts very early, and so they may never have developed those sorts of skills. And then we provide very similar um, real life tasks that are kind of built on the same infrastructure as as the uh, neutral tasks. Like and we introduce them to things to the same things. Use your strategies that you've learned and use your ability to break down a problem. Um, we teach them how to uh, go to work in a factory. We teach them how to do, make your CV, how to produce a text message from a letter, um, how you might uh, go about traveling and what you might have to think about in advance, um, going shopping, making a recipe and some social tasks as well. And the idea is that we teach them something called metacognition. You know, it's not, this is not a game. You don't have to get it correct. You just have to learn the process of being able to carry out a task. That's the point of the, of the program. And we use metacognition in a completely different way by getting people to think about what they're going to do and make choices at the beginning. So guesses. You know, is this going to be a difficult task? How long will it take me? What strategies am I likely to use? And then at the end of the, these these exercises and tasks, they make those same decisions, and they can then reflect on how the you know they may have said it took them 15 minutes at the beginning, but they were overestimating because it actually only took them three. So the idea is to help people reflect on their behaviour, and not just to learn the strategies, but to learn when to in to use those strategies. Uh, But as I said at the beginning, it's it's, it's a blended therapy. So you can do some of that work on the computer on your own. But a lot of the time, what's helpful is to have a therapist who helps you, points you in the right direction, provides that social support, and provides something that the computer just could not provide which is noticing when somebody, particularly in the UK, just wants to stop and have a cup of tea, rather than pushing on, and and making them feel like they're failing because their concentration isn't as quite as good.
0: So, so what led you? What what generated your interest in the field of schizophrenia and metacognition in the first place?
1: I, I suppose it was a very long time ago. I was. Um, developing some measures of social functioning and I went to a long-stay hospital out in the countryside and I interviewed a lot of people and I took a lot of measurements. One of those measurements was some cognition measures and then the hospital closed down. It was a long-stay hospital but then because it was an, uh, an, uh, an expert place for rehabilitation they really tried hard to move people into the most independent uh, living conditions that was possible. And I then went back and found where people were. I did it at one year, at three years and at six years and found that the cognition measures actually predicted where they were going. And that was something you couldn't measure. I never told the staff what the... Um, what the cognitive measures were and who was poorer than somebody else. But somehow, even with the best rehabilitation possible, these cognitive problems just were a barrier to taking on the opportunities that were being offered them. So I decided then that, you know, we should be looking at improving cognition, although that was totally against the tide of thought at that time. Everybody thought that the cognitive problems were static um, and you just couldn't make any changes. But, of course, nobody had actually tried to change them. So uh, it was impossible really to say that they were static, just that if you did nothing, the cognitive problems were there at age 20, at age 40 and at age 60. Um, But nobody had actually tried to make changes and help people to formulate how they might approach cognitive difficulties. So that's sort of why I was inspired by people. And by them telling me they had these cognitive problems, you know, I can't quite concentrate on a conversation. I sometimes, you know, forget what the other person's saying. I can't watch um, a soap opera on on, uh, the television because I forget what somebody said earlier in the program, so, or in a newspaper article, I just can't follow it because I forget what's going on at the beginning. So part of all of that was people talking to me about it, but also this research which showed me that I was, uh, you know, that, that i would discovered that people with cognitive difficulties have real problems in the future.
0: And, and were digital solutions uh, the first thing you thought of, or did you also think of other solutions first before you came to take?
1: I and definitely management? was led kicking and screaming to the digital world. Um, so first of all, we used some sort of paper and pencil tasks, uh, still with a the therapist. Um, and then we did a study with uh, very young people. And... They started to tell us that you know what we were doing was boring, and why couldn't we do it on a computer. So we then developed the first computerized cognitive remediation program. And it's sort of gone on from there, and it was mainly again because you know people value the skills of be- being able to use a computer. So when we started, you know, even the young people hadn't got that many skills because many of them, as I said, a diagnosis of schizophrenia happens early and it develops over a period of time. And often people fell out of school and didn't have the kind of background education or even access to uh, computers and uh, the digital space. So part of providing the computer was also a Um, a motivator for people getting involved. But I should say that these are are not games. Um, They don't have to be super duper avatars, you know, coming out of the screen at you. We are trying to teach people very specific skills and we do not need them to be diverted by having effectively Disney animation on the screen. That is not what they need. They need to be considering, you know, how to approach a task and um, how they might think about using strategies they've learnt out in the the community, in the real world.
0: Mm. And in all this, how do you address concerns about access to digital technology solutions, particularly for individuals in underserved communities?
1: I think it's a real problem. Um, It's not just for underserved communities, even in the more, the less developed world or the less economically, um, uh, you know, the low and middle income countries. It's not even there. It's even in South London, where I'm based. Um, there are communities who, you know, they may have a mobile phone, but it's a pay-as-you-go phone. Or if even if they have a smartphone, they've got a very limited data contract. So, and probably do not have any uh, internet at home. Um, You know, we learned over the pandemic how hard it was for many families who had a couple of children who needed to uh, get online to get some education that actually they only had one uh, piece of equipment to hand around. So I do think if this is a health service intervention, then the health service ought to be thinking about having effectively a lending library of both their data and the ability to use computers. And we have been developing that. We've developed it because if people needed to have online therapy because you couldn't come in to see a therapist, then some services kind of built pods for people so that they could uh, go there and easily log on, um, you know, with only a couple of Uh, keystrokes and that then they could use a computer wherever they were and i'm very keen that we teach people not only in a in a therapist patient dyad but actually part of this therapy is to teach people to be more independent so they need to do homework and on a computer you can just you can tell that they've done their homework because you can see they've logged in um and we need so they need to feel that the that they own their learning, so part of the whole um, therapy is to provide them with opportunities to be able to practice on their own so having access to some of these uh, potential lending libraries or to the computer pods is another way of giving them some more independence so it is a problem access to equipment and Data is a problem, but so are the technical skills needed because we assume everybody can use a mouse, and you know, even my 91 year old dad can email, even if sometimes it's all in capitals. Um, So, but so we do have to teach some people how to use the computer, and uh, I think that's fine for us to do. And in fact, our Therapy has taken that into account and actually has separate um, initial phases that you can go through to teach people more about the computer, you know, how to use a mouse, how to access specific things within the program so that they can definitely turn it on and off um, and and how to enter. So, you know, where to put your password and what your password, where you might find your
0: password. (laughs) Yeah. So so access to technology is one thing basic access to technology but on the other hand how do you see far reaching technology like virtual reality and other immersive technologies being utilized in mental health treatment in the future or now
1: Well there's two ways that it can be used it can be used to well in a very good way to bring the community into the clinic because you can provide more situations in VR where people can begin to practice their skills or do the sort of metacognition self-reflection, which I think is really um, vital. You, I know as a clinician, you ask um, a patient to do some homework in the community. Why don't you just go to the shops and buy these four things? They come back to the next session, they haven't done it. And what you really need is to have a and a, a sort of middle step, you know, you can have things on the computer where you're teaching them problem solving and uh, planning, but then I think having them in the clinic, actually practicing some of those skills in a more real life situation with a with VR is a really good way forward as a sort of stepping stone to going out into the community. I think the the other thing we can do is to have the clinic in the community. So with VR, you could get people to practice things in their living room as opposed to being in the clinic and have a more remote system for providing help uh, with uh, with the uh, particular problems. I mean, you talked about it as mental health treatment rather than about treatment of cognition, and that can clearly be for Uh, Depression and thinking automatic thoughts, negative thoughts all the time when you go into situations. Or it could be somebody who feels, you know, paranoia or anxiety when they enter social situations. So you can create social situations and get them to talk about it and talk their way through it in a graded way, which you cannot do in real life. In real life, opportunities are not necessarily provided in a clear graded way where you could go in and come out again. Whereas in virtual reality, you can definitely do that. And so that is a sort of safe way of enabling people to practice skills, which I think is very important.
0: And is this happening at scale or it's of experiments? Is VR being used?
1: Well, in all of these things, as I discover, you know, you need CE marks and CA marks <laughs> and registration with various people. Um, so what's real I'm part of the, you know, a process of providing the um the understanding of what works. You know, this isn't an app produced on a Monday that's green and then you produce another one on a Wednesday which is yellow, and they do the same thing, but they're a different colour with no evidence whatsoever, but you can market them somehow as helping with your well-being. This is not that kind of space. I think for an ethical mental health digital treatment, you need to show evidence of effects and also to show if the proportion of people who do not improve. So even if you have a very large effect size, it's called it, which is the how much improvement people show, actually there will be some people who will not improve. And People, you know, individuals with mental health problems who then use an app which purports to improve your depression or your well-being and you don't improve, you will feel even worse about yourself. Whereas we really need to situate that information for people and say, well, for about two thirds of the people, there was some improvement, but for a third of them, there was no improvement at all. And then all you see is, well, I'm just one of those people who didn't improve on this specific treatment. And I think that's a vital way of making all of these digital treatments transparent so that you you can see, even before you press the button to download, I'm very keen on this, that you will see exactly what information this provides, not only things like, has a test been done on it? But also on who was the test, because a lot of people do these well-being or depression studies on what we might call the worried well, people who are a little low in mood, but they definitely are not depressed. They're just a little low in mood. And what works for people who are a little low in mood may not work at all for people with depression. So I think you need to know What you're getting. I mean, when you go to a supermarket and you look for cornflakes, you can look on the back of the packet before you actually buy it and compare two boxes of cornflakes. You can't do that with an app. You have to already have effectively bought it, or even if it was free, given away a lot of your data uh, via the non privacy statement that you are signing. And I think that is a real. setback for uh digital health interventions there's been a kind of wild west i think (laughs) with this and that you know from a clinician's point of view i really think we're doing a disservice to people if we don't provide them with evidence that this is likely to work or not work for them and allow them to know what data is out there, how it's been processed, and not in a 32-page document that you are never going to read. You know, if this inf- if your personal information is going to a, a, a third-party marketer, then people probably need to know that before they click on the button.
0: And uh, do you think there's going to be a backlash against this Wild West uh, kind of treatment of a very crucial thing like healthcare?
1: I think health services will become more, um, what's the word? Well, the problem is it's such a wild west. There are 75,000 apps produced almost every year that get added to the app stores. And we've no idea what they are who produce them. They may say things like, this has been produced on cognitive behavioural therapy principles. Most often they're not. Um, They haven't really been tested properly. And I suspect some health services will begin to say, we're not paying for something that we don't know whether it works. And certainly in the National Health Service in the UK, you have to go through lots of hoops. To be able to show that something works, so that uh, it can be prescribed in the in the NHS, similarly in the for the FDA in the states, but most of these people, the cowboys in the Wild West, who are producing a lot of these apps, may do it for you know good reason, not because they want to make money, because they thought it was a good idea and they got the coding skills, they really. Those people are probably going to have a harder time in the future um, actually making a living out of producing these sorts of uh, uh, so-called help for mental health problems.
0: And so what do you think, are well, in a different topic, what do you think are the steps being taken to integrate these digital technology solutions with traditional forms of therapy and treatment? What's the future of that?
1: I think there's a big future in that. There's a future on either side. Most patients, people with mental health problems, when you ask them, will you have just uh, an e-health intervention? They will say, no, we don't want it instead of seeing a person, but we will still use it if it's as well as seeing the person. So I think the there are... Uh, services in the UK which stage the intervention so you get a kind of online help first and then you get more support and then you get face to face treatment. I don't know that that's quite right, but I do think it's important that we do a that they're complementary. They're not either or, and the reason I stress the 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 sort of service mental health service user point of view is that I'm very keen that we should take their views into account rather than just clinicians or even those sort of service providers who think, oh, we'll have that you know, e-health system because it will be cheaper. It's not necessarily cheaper. Um, and for clinicians, one of the things that they don't want is to feel they're losing their skills and they certainly will lose valuable clinical skills for a health service if they don't actually see enough patients of a similar kind. So I see these as, I've sort of described circuits at the beginning as a blended therapy. It's a therapy where we help to introduce the person to the programme. We stick with them to point out the things that they need to know, because those things are not necessarily obvious in the computer programme. And you don't, Necessarily want to, you know, hit them over the head with big words on the screen saying, now you have metacognition. It's more subtle than that. Yeah, you know, they're acting as a as a, a teacher and a therapist and a supporter. And we know that social reinforcement is much the best way of helping people to absorb um, information. So they're there to do all those three things. And and to step away and allow the person to become more independent as you go through therapy. And I think that's the best way to go with these therapies that, that it will be blended. Not definitely not an either or.
0: Mm-hmm. And could you talk a bit more about the supporter aspect of this? Cause the teacher and therapist, I guess we have discussed a lot, but the supporter aspect.
1: I think, um, well, the difficulty is the therapist and supporter kind of overlap quite they all overlap yeah. quite a lot, so part of the support is that you know if a person is um faced with a new problem that looks too complicated, they kind of shut down and think we're not i don't want to do that so part of the supporter role is to help them through that process in order that they should should actually have a go because we know that People who do well in exams are the people who spend time thinking about the problem, not moving on fast and finishing quickly. It's when they spend time thinking about the problem and they become much more successful. So part of the supporter role is to do that work. And it's very hard for a computer to do that work. I think, you know, computers could step in as teachers and they... No, I don't doubt that they could step in as a therapist, although, you know, there's a lot of chatbots around that would think they could. Um, I think the, that that you need that kind of support. I don't know whether you've come across it before, What you're faced with a really complicated statistical analysis and you think, I'm never, ever going to be able to do this. And what you really need is somebody to open the gate and let you think about it a bit more. And do it in sort of um, small doses of uh, in introductions to this and you be- suddenly become much more familiar and you're not going to immediately, that sort of gate comes down in front of you say, I definitely can't do this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was going to say, uh, how do you think like, as far as ethics goes, so you've already sp- spoken about the wild west of like there being no ethics in the app marketplace. But even for apps that aim to be ethical, what is the future of that? Like, how, et- what, or what are the ethical considerations or challenges associated with the use of such digital technology?
1: Well, mainly, I think, you know, where the data goes. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big issue, even for um, organizations that have. Uh, you know, evidence of efficacy. I think the the problem is uh, how you're going to turn a profit to keep it going. And I've heard people at uh, you know conferences like Web Summit mm. say, "Well, we, you know, we're going to have to sell off the data because there's no way that we can actually manage to keep going without that." Um, so I do think that the business plan has to be rethought, and you know people keep telling me, you know, we can't go back on providing things for free. There is no such thing as a free um, service. Something something has to be paid for. So I do think that health providers need to think how this digital health system will actually help improve their patients so that the patients don't come back again into the service and cost money and which can help them to kind of move forward um, and recover. The problem is the costs, as I've managed to do recently looking at cost effectiveness, is that you shift the costs. So a health service could be buying the the app, but the savings are maybe made within the health system, but they're moved on to community costs for support within the community. And so it's quite difficult to trace how effective it can be and therefore how much it's worth paying for that as a society. And I think the financial model is a big driver of the ethical issues that we need to sort out. I mean, one of the obvious ethical issues, though, is the sort of UX design. It's, you know, what you really need is to have service users there at the beginning, not at the end looking at feasibility, but actually saying, this is the sort of problem you need to solve, not the problem you, you know, that you thought you were solving when you woke up this morning. Um, just because you knew how to code it to produce that, that um, app or health um, measure. And I so I do think we the ethics are a lot to do with transparency, trust in what you're doing. I had four T's, but I can't remember the other two. Um, mm-hmm. T for uh, I call them T for T principles. So it's sort of trust for transparency kinds of issues, which we really need to have um in this field because it has kind of run away with us
0: all right so as a person at the forefront of uh the field we're talking about in general uh what is your prediction for the next 10 years the next decade but then the next 50 years and then the next 100 years where is this headed in general uh schizophrenia all of this here
1: okay i think the well, we're t- let's talk about the infrastructure mm. first, because that is a big uh, barrier. I think the infrastructure is, is just going to be built, you know, and I also think that we learn. I said that where these issues about equipment in low and middle income countries, actually, we should be learning from low and middle income countries. You know, what's the lifetime of a, of a phone in those countries, as opposed to in the UK and uh, in Europe, um, so I do think there will be more access to the to an internet or rather than the internet. Um, that some people may begin to pay for services which they would have got for free today because of the issues about. Security and privacy of data, uh, but also about the Wild West as well, which is like the Mastodon and Twitter issues at the moment. Who knows what will happen to Mastodon? But it's clear that Twitter is losing uh, followers because and its market share because of the way that it's managing data. And if if companies begin to build up that trust, that is, there's financial incentives to do that. Um, I then think that that because of that, because the infrastructure will change, I think it will become much easier, it will be thought of as a community resource, just like water is, and that we may be paying somewhere in our taxes for that service, but that will allow Much more of these, I think, blended therapies are where health services are going to go. I think there'll be more remote provision of therapies. I think we learned that during COVID, you know, the sort of telehealth type approaches, which, of course, they've been doing in Australia for a very long time because people are so remote. Um, And I think those there will be more services that are developed but i suspect fewer companies will be making them i think we'll there will be there is not a sustainability i don't think of the market as it is so you know even, no matter how enthusiastic you are you probably need to start with more money than you think it, you know it's unlikely it's going to be in a garage somewhere in palo alto so You know, I I think that's for the next 10 to 50 years. I think between 10 and 50 years, we'll have better um, sort of visual uh, uh, virtual reality. So I think we'll get better avatars. Um, We already have something called avatar therapy, actually, at the institute where I work. Uh, where you build an avatar that looks like the voice you hear in your head. And then the therapist, again, blended therapy, the therapist actually speaks through the avatar. And, and you know, it's a very uncomfortable feeling because the avatars sometimes say terrible things. But you then react to the person's voice uh, when they become, because often the voices will go away if the person actually takes control. Um, and maybe we do that now, but it may be that we can begin to automate some of the process of speaking to a person. That would take the load, certainly, off the therapist, even if the therapist has to guide some of this. Um, and I think we'll have more blended therapies. This is up to 50 years. I don't know. I think... 15 years ago, if I had had to imagine the future now, 15 years ago, I would have had terrible trouble, you know, trying to think. Even though I know I knew people who were writing the internet, you know, writing the code, I don't think I would have realized how big an issue it would become. And even, and if you go back even longer than that, 25 years ago, mm. lots of things really changed. And you know maybe we will have, you know, for health, you know, little implants for people measuring people's blood pressure continually, you know, like they do with uh, for people with diabetes, where it measures your your uh, blood sugar. Um, maybe we'll have other, you know, bits and bobs rather than tattoos. We'll just have these things. Stuck to the outside or on the inside of us, measuring something which is important. Mm. Um, and that's uh, quite likely to be the case in the future. And there will be other breakthroughs. There will be other breakthroughs in learning more about why we get some of these problems, like, you know, developing schizophrenia. And we might be able to prevent some of them. But I don't know that that and that may be helped by having a kind of observational individual data which is collected via mm-hmm. a fitbit <laughs> or by you know your smartphone in terms of you know speaking on the phone and recording your speech and learning something about you from that from your speech tones or where you're walking i mean i do that now actually <laughs> oh I'm really sorry that was <laughs> Um, okay, so, so those are the sorts of things that I think might happen. And, you know, we're looking at ways to predict relapse in the future from active and passive means. So by, you know, speech, by GPS signals, by uh, just passive um, accelerometers in your, in your um, either in your phone or in your watch to try and predict relapse in depression and schizophrenia. I think we might have cracked that by year 50. Mm -hmm. And that might help us then in the next 50 years to prevent some of these difficulties arising. We will never be able to prevent life events. Life goes on, stuff happens. And the, the stuff that happens will have an effect on us Um, so traumatic events will always have an effect on us Um, so we won't be able to prevent everything but maybe we'll be able to predict a few things Mm -hmm.
0: so so leaving all that behind or in front because it's the future the last question is a bit of a personal kind it is for you the question is what would you be doing in your life if not this?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think when I was (laughs) little I did an awful lot of reading in our village library I ran out of the children's section so they allowed me to go to the non-fiction section of the library and you know if I'd been taller I could have been an architect or an accountant or a ballet dancer because they were on the top top shelf In the end, I became a psychologist because I could reach the shelf with the books on with psychology age 11. So I think I would have, I was always interested in people, but I'm also interested in uh, maths and, you know, design. And I used to do ballet. So who knows what I would have done? Um, I don't think I ever made a decision to be a psychologist I just ended up here uh, where I am now so without without very much of a decision making process I must admit which is not the way that I mentor other people to have a more strategic view of their career
0: <laughs> that's interesting so in another universe I'm interviewing you as a ballerina <laughs> <laughs> But in this one, (laughs) this is great, yeah. All right, so that was the last question. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode of Outgrows Podcast. That was Dame Tillweitz. Thanks for joining us, Professor.
1: Thanks a lot for having
0: me. Check out uh, her website for more details, and we'll see you once again next month with another episode.